The responsive reading is in the order of service. We honor the world's women. We suffer because too many women around the world are coerced into childbearing, early marriages, and sex trafficking. We bear witness to the women and girls around the world who endure illness, violence, and death because of their gender and lack of opportunity. We recognize that too many women die giving birth to the next generation. We bless them and hold their families in love. Let the sanctity of life We stand in solidarity with women who lack access to prenatal care, family planning, and other reproductive health services. We make a solemn commitment to help create a world where no woman will die giving birth to the next generation. This week celebrated the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day, not just any old International Women's Day, the 100th anniversary of it. And in honor of that 100th anniversary, the Religious Institute, an institute about sexuality and religion, founded and run by the Reverend Deborah Hafner, a local Unitarian Universalist minister, asked congregations across our country in every faith group to spend some time thinking about the issues of women's health in our world, and especially to spend some time looking at the problem of maternal mortality associated with the lack of health care in our world. This campaign was named the Rachel Sabbath Initiative after the ancient Hebrew matriarch Rachel, wife of Jacob and mother of Joseph, who died giving birth to Benjamin, according to that story we heard from the book of Genesis. In the Hebrew scripture of Jeremiah, Rachel is recalled. There it is written, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel weeps metaphorically for all children who are forced to face life without a mother. Children who are more likely to face health problems, learning problems, poverty, and death themselves. More than one million children are left motherless every year due to maternal deaths. Children are three to ten times more likely to die within two years of their mother's death than otherwise in this world. And the Religious Institute calls on us as people of faith to cultivate compassion for women all over our world who are facing pregnancy and motherhood without adequate health care to do so. 
They ask us to look across our world and to see that every 90 seconds a woman dies in childbirth or from pregnancy-related complications, over 340,000 women a year. 99% of those deaths occur in developing nations, more than half in sub-Saharan Africa and over one-third in South Asia. Most of those deaths are also preventable. They happen because the women who are pregnant do not have access to proper health care. The United Nations, in fact, reports that only one in three women around our world, one in three, receive the recommended prenatal care when they are pregnant. In the United States, 11 women die in childbirth for every 100,000 children that are born. That number is 1,800 in Afghanistan. It's 1,100 in Nigeria. It's 540 in Cambodia. There is no doubt that this is a major problem facing our world, lack of proper health care, especially for women around our world. And it's, it's a wonderful thing that the Religious Institute asks us to spend some time thinking, what is our response as people of faith to the lack of health care around the world? What is our compassionate response to the fact that people are suffering around the world, that the, the process of motherhood, pregnancy, and birth, this process that is necessary for humanity to, to survive, for the next generation to come to life, is such a dangerous thing that, that women are not given the resources to face it adequately in countries around the world. And as I thought about this, as I thought about these women in Nigeria, in Afghanistan, in Cambodia, in India, in Mozambique, it occurred to me that, that we also need to have a religious response, a compassionate response to women in this country, to women in the United States. And so on this International Women's Day, I don't want us to think that this is an issue limited to parts of the world that we all know exist in dire poverty. Healthcare for women is under attack in our country as well. And it is time that we as a religious group, we as a moral voice in our community said something about what's going on all across this nation. Most of you probably know that Planned Parenthood funding, federal funding for Planned Parenthood is under attack in our Congress this very minute. The House of Representatives has already approved a budget bill that would end all federal funding for Planned Parenthood clinics. And I think it's worth the time to unpack that for a second. You see, this is being done mostly in the name of opposing abortion, but it's already against the law for federal funds to be used for abortion. It has been against the law since the Reagan administration, and none of the federal funds that go to Planned Parenthood are used for that. So I think that it asks us to, to, to look at the question, what do those federal funds pay for? What they pay for is mostly health care, mostly sexual and reproductive health care, mostly for women and mostly for poor people. Nearly half of Planned Parenthood's clients qualify for Medicaid, the health care that is available only to the poorest of the poor in this country. The funding that the federal government gives Planned Parenthood pays for gynecological exams, cancer screenings, HPV vaccines, tests and treatment for sexually transmitted infections. It pays for contraceptives, for prenatal care, 
for sonograms for pregnant women. It provides comprehensive sexuality education to teens in poor, underserved neighborhoods. Comprehensive sexuality education that uses the curriculum that the Unitarian Universalist Association has written that promotes self-worth and responsibility in the lives of teenagers. That's what that federal funding goes for. The Nation reports that 20% of women in the United States have at some point received medical care from a federally funded Planned Parenthood clinic. Cutting these things will result only in more diseases for women and their babies, more unwanted pregnancy, and ultimately more costs to taxpayers as Medicaid recipients require hospitalization for preventable problems. That's what we're facing. That's what the short-sightedness of our government is costing us. Federal funding for Planned Parenthood, however, doesn't stop there. It also pays for flu shots. It pays for diabetes care. It pays for many other necessary health care procedures for millions of women who don't have access to it any other way. And so I ask, what will cutting those funds get us? I'm afraid the answer is nothing good. My colleague, the Reverend Tom Belote, minister of the Shawnee Mission UU Church, spoke out against these cuts in a rally in his state capital just this past Friday. He was quoted in yesterday's Topeka Capital Journal, letting us know that this legislation has a body count, he says. It will mean young women dying unnecessarily of cancer that could have been caught with screenings. It will mean more pregnant women dying of complications because they are not receiving the prenatal care it will mean the United States is taking a step towards being more like Afghanistan and Mozambique and Nigeria and less like the country that we fancy ourselves to be. And so as we are called to recognize that maternal health care is a worldwide problem, I ask us not to fail to recognize that it is an American problem as well. That's not the only place where women's health care is under attack in this country. Access to legal, safe abortion services is under attack in state houses all across our nation. Now, I know that abortion is a controversial subject. I know that people who are reasonable and who are acting morally come to vastly different conclusions about the subject of abortion. And I want to hold that space here in this pluralistic religious community that we here who come in this same room can come to vastly different conclusions about whether it is right or wrong, good or bad. But my theology and my ethical code, my notion of what is right in this world, calls for me to advocate for the rights of women to choose what happens to and with their own bodies even as I simultaneously advocate for increased education, for increased awareness, for increased availability of contraception so that abortion rates can be kept as low as possible, I strongly believe that women should be given the rights to choose what happens to and with their own bodies. And across this country, groups opposed to abortion at, at any cost are seeking ever more restrictive regulations on women's health care because they understand that it will make abortion harder to find, and they are winning. Whatever your moral position is on abortion, 
I think that these proposed laws are troubling. Virginia, Texas, Ohio, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, and Pennsylvania are among the states that have instituted or are considering new laws regulating the clinics that offer abortion services. Not a single one of these proposed regulations would save the life of a single pregnant woman. woman. Not, not a single regulation would save a single life. Instead, what they would do is drive medical providers out of their states to make abortions harder to find, to drive people to riskier and, and shadier practitioners who are willing to do things without any oversight by, by the medical authorities at all. That's what those regulations will do. In Georgia, the state legislature has before it a law banning pregnancy termination procedures done outside of hospitals. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, that's 95% of all abortions currently performed. They're done in doctor's offices and clinics, not in hospitals. And that move would do nothing but make abortion prohibitively expensive to all but a select few. And it would again force many to seek unsafe and underground alternatives when they are desperate. In South Dakota, a bill under consideration in that state legislature would expand the definition of justifiable homicide. The justifiable homicide is the law that allows people to kill in self-defense. South Dakota would expand that definition, <clears throat> excuse me, to include as legal killing someone who endangers the life of a fetus. That the bill currently under consideration in the state legislature in South Dakota would make it legal for someone to kill a doctor who performs an abortion. Whatever your position is on abortion, I would hope that you would find the murder of doctors who perform them to be morally, ethically, theologically repugnant. I know I do. Yet another bill before the Georgia legislature Georgia is a hotbed of these bills, it seems, these days, would define abortion as prenatal murder, and it would make it a felony. Moreover, that bill would mandate that felony investigations be open whenever a miscarriage occurs in a pregnancy. Women who could not prove that their miscarriage happened, quote, without human involvement would face felony charges in the state of Georgia. Now, I'm perfectly clear that the, the representatives of the state of Georgia are really not thinking this one through, and yet it is likely that this bill will pass. You see, if they were thinking it through, they would understand that some 25% of women have a miscarriage at some point in their lives, one in four women. 15 to 20% of all conceptions end in miscarriage in this world, in this country, in this country where people have access to health care, 15 to 20%. It's a natural part of pregnancy sometimes, and, and it would make 25% of women in the state of Georgia at some point open to felony charges that they would have to prove that they didn't do anything to hasten this miscarriage, something that is not possible to prove. This type of legislation should be abhorrent to anyone who believes that the bodies of women deserve equal legal protection to the bodies of men. The Religious Institute sponsors programs that raise moral and theological voices in favor of sexual and reproductive health, rights, and equality. 
In their open letter to religious leaders on abortion as a moral decision, they write in part, and I quote, abortion is always a serious moral decision. It can uphold and protect the life, health, and future of the woman, her partner, and their family. We affirm women as moral agents who have the capacity, right, and responsibility to make the decision as to whether or not abortion is justified in their specific circumstance. That decision is best made when it includes a well-informed conscience, serious reflection, insights from her faith and her values, and consultation with a caring partner, family members, and spiritual counselors. Men, they write, have a moral obligation to acknowledge and support women's decision-making. I want to read a little part of that again. We affirm women as moral agents. We affirm women. That is a theological statement. We affirm women as moral agents. We affirm that women, more than half the population of this world, more than half the population of this country, more than half the population of this fellowship, have moral agency, the right and the responsibility to make their own decisions about what happens to and with their bodies. We affirm that because to do anything less is, is against our principles of inherent worth and dignity. To do anything less is against our teachings that each person is created equally. To do anything less is to not live up to the faith, uh, the promise of our faith that each person has a right to self-determination in their lives. And I believe that nothing short of the moral agency of women is under attack in state houses and our nation's capital. Whatever it is that you think about abortion in particular as a controversial procedure, the moral agency of women should not be subject to debate in our country. The moral agency of women should not be subject to debate in our state houses. As it is in nations across our world where poverty, discrimination, and inequity conspire to make childbearing a hazardous conditions for millions of mothers, so it is in this country where people elected to government cannot think clearly enough to understand how their proposed legislation affects the real lives of real people. This is about so much more than reproductive health. It's about equal access to education, equal access to employment, equal rights for women in all cultures, equal rights for women in all religions, including our responsibility as a religious voice to tell our siblings in other religions that they need to rethink their theology if their theology subjugates people because of their gender or sex. On this, the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day, let us dedicate ourselves to upholding the status of women all around the world, to fighting in whatever way we can for the moral agency of all people, far away and right here at home. May it be so. In a moment, we will receive our offering. We collect an offering each Sunday because it supports the ministries of this fellowship it also supports work that is done in the community outside of our walls. 
we share our offering. And in March and April, we are sharing our offering with Westchester United, which has a new name as of this week. Westchester United is an emerging interfaith coalition dedicated to grassroots social change in our county. We are part of Westchester United with a broad spectrum of religious partners all across Westchester County, and we are, we are grateful for your generous giving. Our offering uncovers the abundance that is present in our community, and for that, we are also grateful. We will now receive our offering.